Hello, good morning, and welcome to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. A year and a half after COVID-19 shut down America, it seems to be as strong as ever. The numbers continue to rise and our hospitals continue to overflow. The Delta variant is causing breakthrough infections even in vaccinated people. What do we need to know about Delta? Does the vaccine effectiveness fade? What's the story on the booster and treatment controversies with ivermectin? To help us answer these questions, I am pleased to have back Dr. Ben Westley, an infectious disease specialist here in Anchorage. Please give us a call toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. 550-8433. Or you can email me, line1 at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Wesley, welcome back to Line 1. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's been, um, it's, gosh, it's I think it's been eight, nine months since we've had you on, and, and a lot's going on. So I think uh, we'll start a little bit with, with getting updates. And, and I really want to encourage um, our listeners to give us a call um, it's very rare that we have a, an infectious disease specialist on with us to answer all your questions. So let's take advantage of it um, and let's see where the questions take us. But Dr. Wesley, um, you're on the front lines in the hospital, on the committees, seeing what's going on. Let's get a status update. You know, let, let us know what's going on here in the, um, in the hospitals. Well, um, the state of the hospitals is really, really not good. Um, the hospitals that I work at are running over 100% capacity routinely. Um, More patients than we really have staff to take care of, stretching nurse to patient ratios. And and, uh, many staff are are, uh, ending up now, again, quarantined or even ill with mild um, uh, COVID. And this is leading to not only many patients, more patients than we really have space for, but actually inability to staff all the the beds that, that the hospital's even licensed for. So staffing uh, crunches plus large numbers of COVID patients, uh, well over 50 today at one hospital I work at, and um, as well as, well as uh, traumatic uh, car accidents, ATV accidents, et cetera, that we see more in the summer in Alaska than in the winter has really led to a crunch in the hospitals and made uh, many of us who have been now a year and a half into this pandemic more nervous about the state of the pandemic now than than, than ever. Yeah, so there's a couple of factors that you're mentioning. I know, um, you know, one one hospital in particular the ER is, is, is constantly overloaded. They're holding people in the ER, sometimes 30, 40 people. Is that right, down in the emergency room waiting for beds? That is correct. If you come into the emergency room ill, you, you must be cared for. You can't be turned away. That would not be unsafe. But then uh, there needs to be a space to admit these people to the hospital. And if there are not beds with nurses and respiratory therapists and techs to take care of them, then they uh, end up in the emergency room, which leads to less space in the emergency room for acute ill patients. And even in some cases, patients who are admitted to the hospital needing to 
sit out in the waiting room on oxygen uh, because there's no space in the emergency room for ill patients. And then people that need to be seen in the emergency room, perhaps waiting in their cars because they can't wait in the waiting room because the waiting room has admitted patients, et cetera. Um, these are things that we have not seen before, those of us that have been here 10 or more years. And, uh, and, and knowing that we are still in a rising state of cases and a rising number of hospitalizations, uh, we, we have not seen the worst yet, unfortunately. You know, and the downstream effects, the snowball effects are that the staff that's taking care of these people is, are, are getting exposed more and more. Um, and they're having to either quarantine or be out with COVID, which lowers the, the staff that you have to take care of people, which, the, which can make the situation worse, right? It does. Um, most of the staff that are out quarantined or infected have been exposed in the community or in the home particularly. Uh, Alaska currently is number six in the nation for the highest per capita rate of, of, of COVID-19. We have about, as of yesterday evening, 82 cases per 100,000 population per day. And so we have a very large burden of COVID-19 in the community right now. This is uh, very challenging to be out in the community and not be exposed. This is um, really a combination of factors that uh, leads to the proper sort of dry tinder to allow a brush fire to erupt and spread rapidly. So the, the Delta variant particularly is substantially more infectious than ancestral SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. And it's in combined with a return to school mobility that is near pre-COVID baseline, um, much a large amount of tourism in Alaska this year, and a decrease in what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is basically masking and distancing um, uh, high rates of compliance with that previously and very low rates now has really led to a perfect storm of the exploding uh, case rates that we're seeing. Okay. Well, you just mentioned a, a wealth of different things that we could go into individually, but um, let's. So, how is you said Alaska right now is the sixth in terms of per capita, eighty-two cases per hundred thousand. Really, at, at the beginning, we were trying to keep this what under ten per hundred thousand. Was that the goal? Single digits, correct. Single digits. Okay. So, how does how do we compare to the rest of the U.S. in that regard, and and also what's going on uh, in the world? Right. So states that have had their highest peaks typically end up in the 100 to 120 cases per 100,000 population per day rate. Florida was in that situation until uh, very recently, just in the last one to two weeks, Florida's rates have finally started to come down. Several states in the southeast of the United States are in the uh, 100 per 100,000 cases. Um, however, we need to recognize that the Delta spike really started in the south, and it started a good uh, four to six weeks before our case rates started to rise. So we are, we are four to six weeks behind what was seen in Florida and the southeast. And um, knowing what we know about minimizing spread of this virus, what it takes to do that, how that's happening currently, and then knowing the, the kinetics of where our uh, uh, rates are compared to the lower 48, uh, many of us think we have we have uh, perhaps four or six weeks of, of, of rising case rates potentially before they go down. Nobody's crystal ball is perfect. I think our crystal balls are getting more and more muddy over time and getting used heavily, so they're losing some of their clarity. But um, 
uh, we are we are still rising while many other states have finally peaked and started to come down. Well, and our resources up here are also limited compared to a lot of the, the states down south um, uh, for the amount of, you know, healthcare workers and hospitals available. Is that, isn't that right? It's true. When our hospitals get full, we're looking at, you know, a four-hour plane ride in medevac to try to send patients to a hospital in Washington or Oregon or something like that. And those hospitals are pretty full, too. Many of these patients, when they get to a point where uh, they're too ill for our hospitals, uh, they're really very, very, very unstable to transport as well. And when the decision's made, it, it, it ideally would happen quickly. But when there are not spaces or when there's several days wait for a bed at a level of care even higher than what we have in Alaska, that can be the difference between, you know, surviving and not. So there are many reasons why Alaska uh, and Hawaii, actually, out where they are, uh, as an example, mm-hmm. really have unique challenges that the rest of the states don't have. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about Delta. You brought that up um, let, can you explain uh, to me and our listeners what what's the Delta variant? I mean, why is it different? Um, what's what's going on with this variant? So the Delta variant um, scientifically is known as B one six one seven two, and there's no quiz, but that's the <laughs> uh, numbering system for Delta variant. It was first seen in India in December of 2020. And I think we remember as we were finally peaking, India had a massive challenge this spring in March, April, May. In May, got up to 400,000 cases per day, uh, known cases per day, and 4,000 deaths per day from this variant. Um, it's being studied uh, aggressively, and it's not entirely clear what about this variant makes it um, more pathogenic. But what we know is that the amount of virus in the nose of patients that have Delta variant are uh, three or four logs higher. So that's 1,000 times higher than with ancestral COVID. And we believe that the higher amount of virus in the nose of patients that have COVID uh, correlates to why it is so much more infectious. So the main problem with Delta is that it is two to three times more infectious than the ancestral strain. So COVID that came out of Wuhan, for every one patient, two to three other patients may have gotten uh, uh, COVID if they were completely susceptible. Now the number is thought to be five to eight, um, perhaps about six. So six patients for every one patient that has COVID. That's in the absence of any immunity or vaccines or masking or social distancing, but that's what would happen if everybody was in a, in a room together. So extraordinarily infectious. Only a few viruses known to man are more infectious than this. And uh, so this is, this is primarily, as I mentioned, uh, combined with the other uh, factors, uh, leading to a, a large amount of transmission right now. Okay. I want to give our listeners the call numbers again to um, be able to ask Dr. Wesley questions. Um, statewide, one 888 In Anchorage, 550-8433. Eight four three three, or email us line one at alaskapublic.org. Um, Dr. Wesley, I have um, a couple questions. We can talk about vaccines here. A couple emails, excuse me. Um, Jody wants to know if uh, there's a booster shot. 
Will it be the same vaccine as the first two or a different mixture? So that's a great question. The, um, a small uh, percentage of patients are encouraged to get a third dose. We're referring to a third dose, not a booster. These are patients with moderate to severe immune compromise from uh, immunocompromising conditions or, for example, have had a transplant and must stay on medications to suppress the immune system so their immune system does not reject the transplant. These are third doses, not actually boosters. So all patients need three doses if they have that medical background. And the third dose is uh, uh, four weeks or more after the second dose with the same vaccine. This applies to the mRNA vaccine, specifically Pfizer or Moderna. None of us that are not part of the CDC's subcommittee, the ACIP, which is the Committee on Vaccines, knows exactly what they're going to announce and do. But right now, the understanding is that uh, a booster shot, a third dose, is likely to be recommended to be the same vaccine as one previously got. It sounds like we may see them announce to do that after eight months from completion of the prior vaccine series. We do not know yet what the formal guidance would be, and I think that the data is not uh, available yet to the public to know what data is going to drive that ultimate decision. Um, this is really interesting from an immunology standpoint and from a medical standpoint. So for some of our people with medical backgrounds on the show, uh, if we think about other vaccines that we use for um, preventing illness in, in, in patients who have immune compromise or just patients susceptible to an infection. A good example would be pneumococcal pneumonia. So the pneumococcal pneumonia vaccines that we recommend for patients with diabetes, patients with advanced age or immune compromise, we have several. And in many instances, we actually recommend that patients get what's called a conjugate vaccine and then after a period of time, get a polysaccharide vaccine. So they actually get two different vaccines that stimulate two different portions of the immune system and that have different antigens or different targets for the immune system between the vaccines. So you're actually broadening or hybridizing the immune response to, to, the, to the target, and that makes sense. So there, there could be in the future when there's information, when there's data, it might be that it's better to get an initial vaccine of one sort and then another vaccine of a different make. But that is entirely speculation, and there is not clinical data to support doing that. So there will not be a recommendation to do that soon. But mechanistically, there may come a time where a recommendation like that would make sense. Okay. We have a call uh, from Chris calling from Anchorage. Uh, Chris, welcome to line one. Yeah, uh, good morning. Uh, this is a very interesting topic. Uh, my question to the doctor is it, when COVID-19 was first uh, in the news, everybody was talking about herd immunity. But now with this new strain, that uh, topic has been pushed off to the side. Can you provide us what is the status of herd immunity, and is this something that we can look forward to in the future, or is this just something that was uh, a topic that was uh, not very scientific to pursue? I'll take my uh, com uh, answer offline. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Chris. It's a great question. Uh, Dr. Wesley, is herd immunity still in play? 
Most experts do not think it is, unfortunately. Um, let me give an example. Some of the best models for transmission through the United States are created at the University of Washington called the IHME, Institute for Healthcare Metrics and Evaluation. And their analysis is that despite the large proportion of our population that has had COVID-19 natural infection in the past, let's, let's just call it 30%, something like that, and the proportion that has been vaccinated, let's easily just call it 50%, that um, the current immunity to COVID-19 in the United States is probably only about 56%. So even though many more percent total than that have been exposed to, to virus or been vaccinated, a very, very large proportion of the United States remains susceptible. Um, we are seeing mild cases and occasionally severe cases on top of vaccinated patients or reinfection from native inf from natural infection. So um, it, most experts do not think that herd immunity in the in the concept of once you've had illness or once you've had vaccine, you cannot become contagious, you cannot become sick, you cannot spread virus. Um, that obviously would have been the hope if the vaccine or prior infection was like measles and it prevented that we would be in a much different place than we are now. But the reality of coronaviruses is that that does not look like it's, it's going to occur. What most experts that I have read believe will ultimately happen when enough of the world has been infected or vaccinated, or both preferably uh, vaccinated, uh, is that the chance of severe infection that leads to hospitalization and death will be so much lower in patients that have been vaccinated or have had virus in the past that very few patients who get COVID-19 in the future would end up uh, having to go to the hospital or having to be admitted or end up on a ventilator or, or die. And so some years from now, the expectation for many is that this will be another one of our seasonal circulating viruses, much like the flu. And we may need to get shots at a regular schedule to try to minimize our risk of getting sick. And uh, when flu is going around in the winter, for example, we all know it's going around and, and we hope we don't get it, but sometimes I think most of our listeners have had flu in their lives and, mm -hmm. and know what that's like. So the thinking is that this will become another scourge like that that hopefully does not lead to severe strain on the health system, but uh, it is not likely that there will be herd immunity such that COVID isn't um, going around much of the time uh, in certain places. Okay. Um, well, Dr. West, so we have a couple calls. Uh, I, have, I have Dan and Kate in the, in the wings here, so stay on the line, guys. We're going to take a quick uh, break here and then come back with more questions from our listeners. Um, you are listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection. If you have a question or comment for our guest today, give us a call, 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. After this short break, we will continue our discussion on COVID with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Ben Westley. Line One, your health connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Providence Imaging Center with over 30 years of commitment to the community with a comprehensive patient-centered focus approach. Learn more at provimaging.com. 
The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I am joined by Dr. Ben Wesley, an infectious disease specialist in Anchorage. Um, Do you have more COVID-related questions or vaccine questions? We're getting some calls and emails here. I'll do my best to get through as many as possible. You can call us toll-free statewide, 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. That's 550-8433. Or email me, Alaska, uh, excuse me, line one at alaskapublic.org. Um, okay, let's go with Dan calling from Anchorage. Dan, welcome to line one. Thank you very much. My question is, first off, I am a COVID crossover survivor, and I am trying to backtrace my point of contact, and I am very curious as to what the incubation period would be from the time I made contact till the time I started showing symptoms. That's my question, and I'll take the answer off the air. Appreciate it, Dan. Um, Okay, Dr. Wesley. Yeah, typically uh, the shortest one would develop symptoms after uh, exposure would be 48 hours. That's on the very shortest. Um, Three to four days is more common. But up to 14 days after exposure, one could develop symptoms. Um, and so that's, uh, that's the general range that we're uh, qu- quoting people. Okay. All right. And we have Kate calling from Anchorage. Kate, welcome to Line 1. Um, hi. Good morning. Oh, good morning. It's actually Petagak. But anyway, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm pro-vax. Um, and also, I, I've done a lot of research as far as from the beginning when this all started. Um, and if I can recommend a website, factcheckvaccine.com, and also search research Peter McClough and also Byron Bridal. They're virologists. They're peer-reviewed, written many articles. Um, so, but, you know... My question is, when is this going to end? First, the, the first shot, second thought, shot, third, fourth. I mean, come on. People need to start doing the research as far as um, not only what's in these shots, but also what's going on in the world. You look at Australia, Canada, France. I mean, it's crazy how the government is trying to push this quote unquote vaccine on us and I have to say the booster shot it's not even approved by the FDA sure the Pfizer is Um, but then again when you do the research on you know FDA and them actually having conflict about 
the booster shot being released um, without authorization. And so my words to the public is stop watching fake news, start doing the research, and really find out what's going on. And so, but anyway, just to do the research, start with factcheckvaccine.com. Um, I didn't hear exactly what the question yeah, was. I, I heard it. a lot. Yeah. Okay. So um, there are a lot of uh, con- re- legitimate concerns people do have about a vaccine, and researching from reputable sources is very, very encouraged and important. Um, and those do include the CDC and the ACIP. Uh, they do include the World Health Organization. They do include the NIH and the IDSA. We know exactly what's in the vaccine. The manufacturers publish that, and it's very, very clear in all the documents when the vaccines are released. It's 100% true that we do not have um, any FDA approval for boosters, which is why we're not providing boosters yet. And it is also true that we cannot know the effects of a booster until it's given and followed. So one of the challenges is as people get sick and some get reinfected or end up in the hospital, um, there's, there's reasonable concern that we should give third doses to try to minimize that. The argument is, should we have that done somewhere else or should it be done in studies and then we watch for three or six months and find out whether a third dose actually decreases the risk of reinfection and decreases the risk of hospitalization and death and only then spread it to everybody? Or should we proactively, based on we know about vaccine safety and vaccine efficacy, should we go ahead and do boosters earlier to try to minimize the harm? Third doses, there is no reason to believe a third dose would ever be more harmful than a first or second dose. We have many, many vaccines that we give multiple doses, influenza vaccine, rabies vaccine. When workers were traveling the world to eliminate smallpox, many of the vaccinators would vaccinate themselves every single day for smallpox in front of a village to gain trust about the vaccine being safe and then vaccinate the village. So we have we have. Uh, hundreds of years of experience now with vaccines, and there's no reason to believe a third shot would be more harmful. The question is how much benefit is there? And I think as we are seeing healthcare workers out sick, we are seeing critical infrastructure workers, uh, school bus drivers, teachers, food workers out sick again from their jobs. Trying to minimize the harm to society uh, by vaccinating is something that a lot of us do think will happen, will need to happen, and maybe already should be happening. So as soon as third shots are allowed by um, the federal uh, agencies that review the safety and efficacy data, um, people probably will need to get them and will be encouraged to get them. And I certainly will be in line to get mine uh, when that happens. Great answer, Dr. Wesley. Sorry about the technical issues there. Got my headphones fixed. Um, we're, I have a lot of emails here, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get through as many as possible. Um, we've had a couple emails regarding uh, flu shots. Um, as you know, we're we're entering into the flu season. It's certainly gonna get a little complicated as to you know symptoms uh, overlap. So, is there any recommendation, or what are your thoughts on the flu shot? And the maybe the interaction or distance between that and a and a vaccine. Right. So the current recommendation is that influenza vaccine can be given at the same time as COVID nineteen, either initial doses or boosters. 
many organizations are considering doing both at the same time since we think boosters will be needed right around the time that the flu shots are going to be available in most hospitals, for example, um, uh, offer their employees influenza vaccine each fall. So that would be uh, logistically helpful to be able to do that at the same time. There is a lot of concern about what would happen if somebody has influenza and COVID together. We have minimal data to know, but what we do know about virus co-infections with other types of viruses, RSV plus influenza as an example, it's not a leap uh, and it makes sense. The truth is people do do worse when they have multiple virus infections rather than one. So it gives a lot of us concern if influenza starts circulating in large amounts at the same time COVID is circulating in large amounts. During the winter, most, most hospitals move to a multiplex PCR platform so that when we test somebody for COVID, we will also be testing them for influenza uh, if, they have, if they have symptoms of COVID or influenza, because it can be a little hard to sort them uh, out clinically. And so when flu is circulating, basically we'll be testing everybody for both of those things uh, since they have different antiviral treatments and different um, uh, um, requirements for care. Okay. All right. That's excellent. Um, so I I want to give our, our listeners the call-in numbers again, and then I'll get to some more emails here. Um, once again, call us toll-free 1-888-353-5752 in Anchorage 550-8433. Um, Dr. Wesley, I have an email from Danielle. I think she has a, a really good question. She has a, a daughter that's too young to get vaccinated. Um, and she is in in-person school because of certain learning uh, issues. It's much more effective for her to be in-person than in-distance learning. And she wants to know, um, you know, she says the school is small. It has a strict mask policy. However, they've already had to close a classroom due to, due to uh, a positive case and go to distance learning temporarily. So her question is a good one. Is, is in-person school safe um, for her daughter who um, again is too young to be vaccinated and also has um, some medical issues right well um, these are great questions I have two daughters they're 9 and 12 they are in person school in the Anchorage school district and my wife and I think it's very important for them to be in person school and it is true that if they were living in a bubble somewhere, they would be at less risk of getting COVID than if they're out in the community. However, um, we believe that the, the benefits of being an in-person school outweigh the risks. And so it's a decision that we, we made, and we were much more comfortable making that because the Anchorage School District is requiring masking. They are doing an excellent job of contact tracing uh, cases. So if there's an active case, who is exposed, which is in a, in a, uh, within six feet for 15 minutes without masks on, and that's primarily at lunch or in sports is where those things are occurring. And they're being transparent about reporting active cases, which schools those are at, et cetera. So my family, and, and actually talking with our kids as well, made the decision to, to, to have in-person school. I would have more pause if there were not mitigation measures being taken in the schools to try to minimize the risk to my kids and the, the risk to their teachers, frankly, as well. There is a lot of COVID going around in our community. Nationwide, one in four cases are in children now. Schools have just come back, and that is certainly a part of it. That said, because of the medication measures being taken, other than at lunch and sports, um, 
the, to my knowledge, the clusters have largely been in those settings and not in classroom settings where there is some space between children and masking. And so compared to many settings in Anchorage now where these non-pharmaceutical interventions, masking, distancing, uh, are not occurring in high levels, I actually think that the schools in Anchorage and the hospitals in Anchorage may be among the safest places to be right now, specifically because of the attention to distancing, masking, and tracking cases. So, so my family's comfortable making the decision, but this has to be a decision made on a, a, a family-to-family basis. Thank you, Dr. West. I think that's an important question. And uh, I just want to comment or have you comment on masks getting a lot of emails. Of course, it is a very controversial subject. Uh, some people will say masks don't work or the viruses are too small for masks to filter it out. Can you give us your, you know, your two-minute synopsis or opinion on masks for our listeners? So um, I think both sides have legitimate arguments about this issue. So when people say viruses are too small for a normal mask to filter out, that's true. Stuff can go around a mask or through a mask. Viruses are tiny, but they are in particles of liquid and aerosols. And a normal procedure mask, medical mask, or cloth, cloth face mask blocks a large amount of the particles. Estimates vary, but uh, and and may um, may be slightly different now with Delta because we know Delta is more transmissible. But the current estimates are that masks probably decrease the risk of acquiring COVID. If both parties are masked, they decrease it by, uh, say, let's say 50% if you're wearing your own mask, decrease it for getting COVID from somebody else. Masks are most important for preventing the spread of those particles coming out of somebody else's mouth. So in healthcare settings, we do not consider a close exposure if both parties are masked. The risk of getting COVID when both parties are masked is very low, and that appears to be true even for Delta. So masks are not a silver bullet. They are not perfect, but they decrease the risk of acquiring or transmitting COVID-19. So they need to be part of a package of vaccination, spreading out, and masking to try to decrease transmission in the community. And again, I think what's really important is that we will not be able to eliminate all COVID spreading in the community, and we talked about this earlier. But right now, so many people are still susceptible to getting severely ill or dying that they are clogging up the hospitals, and sadly, some are dying. And to minimize the risk of that tragedy happening to any one of our families or ourselves, we need to do everything we can reasonably do to minimize transmission. And masks are harmless, they are cheap, and they are effective at minimizing the risk of transmission of COVID-19. So they are a critical component to what we're doing. And anybody indoors, in public, in Alaska should be wearing masks at all times. Thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't... Um you know, in my in the operating room, I wouldn't uh, ever go into an operation or operate on someone without a mask on. You know, it's the same same concept to me is how I think about it. So I would encourage people to to mask up just to reduce their risk. Um, we have Joan from Fairbanks. Joan, can you hear me? Welcome to line one. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, Joan. What can we answer for you? Well, I don't really 
actually have a question. I have more of a comment, um, and it was to a previous uh, regarding a previous caller that said that you know people need to stop listening to fake news and do their research. And while I certainly think that people um, need to be informed about what they're doing and you know taking vaccines, um, I for one have had a smallpox vaccine when I was a kid. I'm vaccinated for polio. Um, measles, mumps, I can remember standing in lines when I was a little kid in the school gymnasium. Um, my kids have gotten all their vaccines. Um, and I am a very educated, well-educated person, and I, I do take the responsibility of being informed seriously. At the same time, I'm not an epidemiologist, and I do trust um, and listen to people who are experts in their field because that's science. Um, and I think that we all need to do that. I'm vaccinated. I wear a mask. Um, I'm getting ready to go and visit my 100-year-old mother here in a couple of weeks and flying across the country. Um, and I just wish that people would do everything within their power to protect themselves and to protect other people. Um, and I, I heard a while back um, someone discussed what would have happened in London during um, during the war if people had said it's a matter of personal freedom. I don't need to turn my lights off during an air raid. Um, how many people would have died? And I think we're in a similar situation, and we just need to stop all the fuss and come together and do everything in our power. Thank you for your comment, Joan. I, I, I agree with you, and that's part of what we're trying to do on the program today is provide our listeners with uh, accurate and up-to-date information from experts, um, not not Facebook news. So we appreciate it. Um, we have a call from Kristen in Anchor Point. Kristen, uh, welcome to Line One. Ah, thank you. Um, I was just wondering because uh, I know we hear these people say, oh, I government can't tell me what to do, blah, 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 blah. I can, you know, don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to do this. So I went online and Googled a bit about the powers that countries and states have in the face of uh, epidemics like this. And actually, it's quite, uh, it's quite chilling because over the, the centuries in this country uh, and in other countries, the government has shown quite a will that if something, uh, the epidemic of some kind is spreading quickly, they have a will to keep it in check to the very fact that they will uh, can seal up uh, states, counties, cities, and just literally leave people uh, totally, completely quarantined from everybody else. No in, no out. Uh, maybe some food will be sent in on a horseback. Sure, Kristen. Thank you. Do you have a Do you have a comment or a question, though? The question is, why doesn't the uh, like the CDC and your uh, host, uh, your guest? I'm not sure how much he knows about historic uh, aspects of treating epidemics before vaccines. But uh, it seems to me that if these people want to really keep their freedom, they should do as they're told, because the government can force things on them, even if they don't like it. And they can use violence to do it because they have done it in the past. Okay, Kristen, appreciate the call. Um, any any thoughts there, Dr. Wesley? Well, I guess my thought is, and it's it's also a sort of a, a feeling is um, answers that question goes back to the other caller, which is 
I wish that none of that was necessary. I, I, you know, it's the hospitals are overfull. People's critical surgeries for, you know, spinal tumors to prevent paralysis and infections of the spine and, and, and things like this that I've been seeing lately are being delayed. People are having horrible outcomes from the delay. And, you know, a lot of people in the hospital are not there for COVID. They're there for heart attacks and they're for strokes and they're there for cancer. So the thing is, right now, it's a terrible time to get in a car accident. It's a terrible time to come down with cancer or a heart attack. So I would recommend to our listeners, don't get cancer right now. (laughs) Don't have a heart attack right now. Well, the reality is, it's pretty hard to avoid getting a heart attack or, or cancer. But it is not that hard to minimize the risk of COVID spreading in our communities if we all get vaccinated, if we all wear masks in public spaces, and we all avoid gatherings indoors without masks unless everybody's vaccinated. That's the guidance. It's been the guidance since July again. Um, And it is a lot easier to prevent that than to prevent those other things. And so as a community who love and care about each other, I I just wish that none of that government stuff was necessary. But sadly, we're just not seeing the behavior um, coupling with what the recommendations are. And we're not seeing leadership in, at the state level or at the municipal level reinforcing that those behaviors are important. And that, that makes me sad. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll let that um, marinate a little bit. You're listening to Line One, your health connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, give us a call. Statewide 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. After the short break, we will continue our discussion on COVID with infectious disease specialist Dr. Ben Wesley. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is now authorized in the U.S. for anyone 12 years or older. Getting your child immunized with this free, safe, and effective vaccine is a great way to get them safely back to sports, get-togethers, and other fun summer activities. Learn more about COVID-19 vaccines and schedule appointments at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the State of Alaska COVID-19 Vaccine Helpline at one 833 This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. to line one your health connection on alaska public media i'm your host dr justin clark i'm joined by dr ben wesley infectious disease specialist in anchorage give us a call toll free statewide 1-888-353-5752 in anchorage 550-8433 or email me line one at alaskapublic.org um, we'll try to get to as many calls and emails as I can. Um, I'm thankful for all of you calling in and emailing. Um, uh, we're going to talk here with Ethel calling from Sterling. 
Welcome to the show, Ethel. Oh, thank you, Dr. Clark. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Oh, um, thank you. I had a question for your um, your specialist. Um, I have a small social bubble, and I a couple of us, um, I believe, um, endured the a breakthrough of the Delta variant in our systems, and I was taking care of one family that um, had the parent and children that were like a, a too young to get the virus. But I'm really curious about how much impact my surviving um, a breakthrough infection has on on the levels of um, antibodies or antigens in my system. I'll still go for the um, booster shot as soon as I qualify in late October. But in the meantime, I feel like um, all the symptoms that, that I endured were relatively mm-hmm. mild to the point where after two and a half weeks, I finally was strong enough to go for my um, COVID-19 test two weeks in a row, and I, I came out negative for both of them. Thank you, Ethel. My second second question is um, when I see family members who have survived a a breakthrough, um, there's a mild disagreement going on about um, whether or not to continue wearing masks. I will because I don't want to be an inhaler and spreader. Thank you, Ethel. Thank you, Ethel. I'm going to have to stop you there for just for time. But um, Dr. Wesley, so to piggybacking off of Ethel's comments, um, what is the what is the thinking on immunity either through vaccine, either through getting COVID, or both? What what's uh, what are the leading thoughts on this? Yeah, these are critical questions and really good questions that a lot of us are asking right now. Because like the caller, I'm an unfortunate. Uh, recovering sufferee of a mild COVID infection about three weeks ago on top of my vaccine. And I do believe my vaccine prevented me from getting severely ill or helped me not get severely ill. But this is a question a lot of us are asking. The uh, truth is we know more right now about people that had uh, native um, COVID infection first and then got vaccine because that's the order that these things came out. COVID came out first and then vaccine. So we know that if you had natural COVID and then you got a vaccine, the levels of your neutralizing antibodies, which prevent you from becoming infected, uh, rise many fold, many logs higher after a vaccine shot and studying patients longitudinally after getting vaccine after natural disease, those that got vaccine had about two to three times less chance of getting COVID uh, after getting vaccination. So vaccine after natural infection is very helpful at boosting the immune system. People are referring to this now as hybrid immunity, and it probably offers substantially better protection than simply the vaccine, but we just don't know that. What nobody ever should do is go out and get COVID to have hybrid immunity. That would be dangerous. That would be wrong. You could spread COVID, which you cannot do from a vaccine. We are not certain what happens if you get breakthrough COVID after a vaccine. That hasn't, the immune systems haven't been well studied yet in that scenario. 
think most immunologists would think it's a similar situation where your immune system is primed from that natural infection after having vaccine. And, we, and those people probably have a hybridized immunity that provides some additional benefit and protection, certainly for the, the 90 days following. Unfortunately, we know that these antibodies, these neutralizing antibodies, are waning over time and that the effectiveness of the vaccines slowly does decrease over time, which is why we talked about boosters earlier. Um, when third doses are available, I will go get mine. Even though I got COVID after being fully vaccinated, I will get the third dose. I do not believe that there's any increased chance of risk from that third dose, and it may boost my immunity even further. So I will do that. And I would encourage the listeners to do that. We'll have more information about this soon, but it's a really interesting question. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, I think we're, we're going to go to a call here, but I wanted to ask uh, real quick, uh, Ashley had a great email uh, just about the boost is, is can she boost with Pfizer after a vaccination with Moderna or vice versa, I imagine? Well, right now, I think that the recommendation will probably be to boost with the same uh, vaccine that one originally got. Again, the recommendations are not out yet. This is not a recommendation unless one is immune compromised. It will likely say that you should use the same. Pfizer may have a guidance prior to Moderna as well. Uh, there is a good chance that a recommendation would ultimately say that if for some reason uh, you had Moderna and then Moderna was not available, but Pfizer was available for booster, that that would be an alternative. But again, uh, I do not know for sure because that guidance is now yet. Okay. All right. Let's, um, um, Tobin, let's, let's go with line 10, please. Uh, Deb, we have uh, Deb calling from Fairbanks with, uh, with a question. Deb, welcome to line one. Thank you. I have, uh, I would say most of my friends and family are vaccinated. My mom had polio, so it was an easy thing for me. Uh, I'm confused why people need to debate it, but I do have some close friends that are not vaccinated, and they say things like, the flu kills more people annually than COVID, even the Delta variant, and now this new variant, new, new variant. I don't feel I can influence anyone, frankly, mm -hmm. and it's such a heated debate. And again, I'm so curious why public health and virologists have, there's no longer respect for public health. Um, so if you could address that regarding the annual flu season and death rate versus COVID and now these variants, yep. and I'll listen offline. Thanks so much for the call. Yeah, Dr. Wesley. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's uh, patently false that influenza causes more deaths annually than COVID has. We are looking at three-quarters of a million deaths by December based on current modeling. That is substantially more than the 1918 uh Spanish influenza pandemic. So, uh, you know, an average winter with 10, 20,000 deaths nationwide from, from uh, influenza pales in comparison to anything that we are seeing with COVID-19 and most likely pales in comparison to the number of deaths we're going to be seeing for several years coming from this illness. Uh, so um, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to be challenged with patently false information because if people will not 
are not willing to uh, be challenged uh, with with verifiable data from the agencies that track mortality, then it's hard to, to, to alter opinions. COVID-19, in the most past week, the estimates are uh, 14,000 deaths uh, from related to COVID-19, either proven or excess deaths from COVID-19, whereas cardiac disease caused 10,000. So COVID-19 week to week is currently the number one killer of people of any sort in the United States, and that's, um, that's a frightening statistic. It is, and, you know, and I'd like to, to add to that that the flu traditionally on a year-to-year basis is not killing young, healthy people. It's, it's killing people that are immunocompromised or older, and, and COVID is killing healthy people. Uh, it's a different virus, and we need to remember that. Um, we have about five minutes left, Dr. Wesley, and I want to give you the opportunity because I've had several emails here about um, – ivermectin and other medications that people, um, you know, we can also say maybe uh, that's a that's a drug, but also homeopathic cures, things that people are doing. Do you have um, any information for our listeners about ivermectin and other things that people are doing? Thank you very much. I think this is really, really important because the big void in COVID-19 treatment has been how do you treat people that are at home that are not sick enough to need to be in the hospital but want to try to minimize the risk of getting really sick and ending up in the hospital and dying. So ivermectin is a medication I'm familiar with. I've prescribed it many times for treating parasitic infections, strongyloides, for example, uh, and occasionally for very severe scabies uh, or recalcitrant head lice. It is typically given in a very low dose, 200 micrograms per kilogram, and it's a one-time dose. Uh, Ivermectin in vitro suggested that it may decrease virus growth, but the drug requires uh, intracellular um, concentrations and locations inside the cell that are not achievable in vivo. So there was initial hope that this was going to help. There was a study of about 400 patients in Egypt that showed uh, potentially a massive 90% mortality decrease that would was really uh, statistically shocking. And that study has been retracted. Patients were duplicated. The study was actually um, portions were plagiarized and written by computers to alter words from other sources. And so that study has been debunked. We now have many, many studies, um, sev- over 70 studies, 14 of which were high enough quality to be included in a Cochrane Library Review, which is a meta-analysis combining studies that are good enough quality to be relied upon. And that meta-analysis shows no signal towards benefit nor harm of ivermectin. And the study's conclusions are that the authors cannot say definitively whether this might hurt people or might benefit them. 14 studies, 13 for treatment and one for prevention, show no benefit of using ivermectin. The thing that scares me is that so-called experts that are promoting this have websites that have click buttons to buy your ivermectin and spend maybe $1,400 on ivermectin. They have click buttons for donating to their website. And they are recommending doses three, four, five times the usual dose daily 
for months or longer as treatment or prevention for long COVID or for prevention of COVID. These are dangerous doses, not studied, not recommended by reputable folks. And I would argue that any reliable medical source will not have a click button to pay cash for your ivermectin and will not have a click button to donate to the website. So, so peop, I would really encourage people to think about the data that they're reading and where it's coming from, I strongly recommend people not use ivermectin. What we do know is that being vaccinated minimizes the risk of getting severe COVID, but also if someone is not vaccinated, they don't have antibodies in their blood to help them not get very sick. So if people are not vaccinated and they get COVID-19 and they have risk factors for getting very sick, that's over age 65, or they have diabetes or obesity or cardiac disease, treatment with antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, this is like the Regeneron cocktail that President Trump got last year, treatment with monoclonal antibodies decreases the risk of hospitalization and death by about 80%. In fact, unvaccinated people who uh, are exposed to COVID and have risk factors and not even infected yet can get monoclonals for post-exposure prophylaxis. So, uh, and then finally, those monoclonal antibodies can be given to people who are vaccinated but get a breakthrough infection and have those risk factors, age over 65, obesity, cardiac disease, et cetera. So monoclonal antibodies are the treatment of choice and are highly effective at minimizing the risk of severe disease. They are available by several companies through one's doctor, and the state of Alaska has information online about how to access monoclonal antibody treatment. There are several companies that will bring them to people's homes and infuse them in an ambulance or a mobile medical setting so that those infectious patients don't have to come to hospitals. And in fact, those companies will even offer vaccine to neighbors or family members uh, at that time if they choose to get that. So monoclonal antibodies are are really important and are critical outpatient therapies for uh, COVID-19. Well, that's an excellent way to, to close up our show. Uh, thank you, everyone, for all of the calls and emails. I wish I could have gotten to more. It uh, just tells me we need to do another show here with Dr. Wesley. So thank you, Dr. Wesley, for being with us. Thank you to our audio engineer, uh, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adeline Baxter. You can find out more information on this and previous programs on our website at Alaska Public. Dot org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line 1, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Stay safe, Alaska. Line 1 is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Anchorage Bariatrics has been a supporter of Alaska Public Media. Learn more about Line 1 and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life informed. This is Alaska Public Media.